Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SubChina featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're talking to Derek Sandals, Director of Baijiu Education and Communication for Ming River Sichuan Baijiu, a company who is working to introduce the famous Chinese spirit Baijiu to U.S. consumers. Derek is also the author of the first English-language books about Baijiu, Baijiu, The Essential Guide for Chinese Spirits, and Drunk in China, Baijiu and the World's Oldest Drinking Culture. The latter, I must say, I read recently and can heartily recommend. It weaves together as Derek personal story living in China during a really interesting period and also has a lot of great insights and background on Chinese culture, history, particularly how they vary regionally. So, you know, even if you're not interested in Baijiu, I recommend you picking it up. It's a really interesting read for those of us who are interested in China. So, Derek, welcome to China Corner Office. Thanks for having me. Great. So uh, the first question, which, you know, maybe some of our listeners might have uh, as well. So so why Baijiu? You know, my experience is that most Westerners, Westerners find it to be like fire water, don't like it, you know, get stuck having these little sips of it and, and grimace afterwards. And so I'm curious, you know, what attracted you to the spirit? And did you like it from the first time you tried it or was it an acquired taste? It was definitely an acquired taste. And I think my early experiences with Baijiu have a lot to do with um, why I decided that I wanted to learn more about it because, you know, for someone like me who comes from America, you've traveled, you know, thousands of miles to live in China. Uh, you're out there and you're in a situation where the social life of China and the business, the holidays, the celebration, uh, even like weddings and funerals, everything involves drinking there where People gather around a dinner table, like spread with many different dishes, and usually there's a bottle of Baijiu in the center of that meal. And that's kind of the fuel for conversation that, the, you know, keeps the, the meal and the excitement level raising uh, throughout the evening. So um, I had the same experience that a lot of foreigners have where I had a few initial experiences with Baijiu where it didn't leave a very good impression. I didn't understand what I was drinking. I didn't understand why it was so strong or why it had such unusual flavors. And I really didn't understand why um, the Chinese people I was drinking with were essentially like forcing it down my throat for uh, most of the meal. 
Um, so it was uh, confusing in every way to me uh, as as an outsider to this culture. But I knew how important it was, uh, both in the world of spirits, that it was the most popular drink in the world because so many people drink it in China. And I knew that it was incredibly important culturally to to, to everything. So um, I knew that so long as I stayed where I was in my comfort zone and didn't drink much by Joe, I was going to be missing out on a very large portion of what was going on around me. And you know, like, why, why wouldn't I try to better understand it if, if the result of that would be having access to a much larger portion of China than I had before? Yeah, really interesting. And I, you know, give you a lot of credit. I mean, I, you know, I've developed a liking for Baijiu myself. I mean, it's, you know, over the years, like you're saying, sort of going to many of these banquets, and it's just so fun. I mean, to, you know, toast people and, you know, people are getting up, walking around the room. And so, you know, I mean, I think it really, you know, makes sense um, uh, to embrace it. I'm, I'm curious, though, I, I'm not sure everyone, though, ends up actually liking uh, it uh, or really appreciating sort of the variations in, in the flavors. Can you say a little bit about how you actually went from sort of your first experiences, which, you know, maybe, you know, you didn't understand it or thought it tasted horribly. I know that was sort of my experience uh, to really coming to an appreciation of it. Yeah, well, I think one of the big you know, stumbling blocks for a lot of people is that they have an early negative experience with Baijiu and they assume that that is somehow representative of the whole of what Baijiu is and what it can be. Um, whereas very few people outside of China and even very few people within China, like have a sense for just like what Baijiu is at like the most basic level. Um, you'll often see major news outlets uh, describe Baijiu with a parenthetical like Chinese rice wine or, or something like that when almost none of Baijiu is made from rice. And right. it's, it's not a wine. It's a, it's a distilled spirit, hence the, hence the strength. And it's not just one distilled spirit. It's many distilled spirits. It's an entire family of drinks. So... Um, at, at present, they have about 12 different uh, distilled spirits that are traditionally produced in China. And each one of them is called Baijiu, but they're very different things. So um, just, just learning that in the first, you know, couple weeks of researching Baijiu, learning that there are different things called Baijiu, is a really eye-opening experience because once you know that there that it's not just one thing, you can go to a liquor store and buy five different spirits. All of them are called Baijiu. They have different like category names underneath that. But um, and then taste them side by side and realize like, wait, no, it, it's it's not the thing that I didn't like. It's it's a few different things, and some of them maybe I don't like, but many of them I do. And then it just becomes a process of trial and error experimentation until you discover the drink what you like. And, and what I've found in now about a decade of introducing lots and lots of people to Baijiu for the first time and giving them samples of different styles of Baijiu is it's very, very rare that you taste people on the, like all of the most popular styles of Baijiu. And they come away saying, I hate all of this. Um, generally, people like at least half of the Baijos I serve them. And it's not uncommon when I'm working with people in the alcohol industry that they'll like all of the different Baijos I, 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 I serve wow. them. So it really is something that it, because there's so little known about it and it's so poorly understood around the world, it's, it's a situation in which once you get over those basic educational hurdles, you can really make a lot of headway. And, and a lot of people discover that Baijo isn't at all what they thought it was and, and that there is redeeming value. That's, that's not the case for everyone with all Baijos, but, um, I'd say more often than not, I've been able to convince even the, like, most 
ardent Baijo skeptics that there's at least one Baijo out there that they would enjoy drinking. Cool. I'd love to dig in a little bit with, about some of these different types. So it's sort of like, you know, whiskey and there's mm-hmm. like scotch or bourbon or, you know, maybe Irish whiskey, you know, sort of under this category, I guess. I mean, so this bit la- larger category of Baijo. Uh, can you describe what some of the key differences among the different types are i mean i don't think we need to go into all 12 but right but thinking like you know maltai is a famous one wulong ye is another famous one you know maybe some of the more famous ones like what you know what differentiates them from some of the others sure so yeah usually i don't go into all 12 different styles because eight of the 12 tend to be fairly obscure and are only made by you know one or two different distilleries Whereas four make up the overwhelming majority of the entire market. And those are, you know, uh, rice aroma baijiu, which comes from southeastern China, uh, light aroma baijiu, which comes from northeastern China. And then you have strong aroma and sauce aroma baijiu, which come from southwestern China, from Sichuan and Guizhou, respectively. And these four styles of baijiu are very different drinks. So rice aroma, as the name suggests, uh, is made from rice, whereas the other three categories are primarily made from sorghum, uh, which is a tall, stocky plant that's kind of similar to corn. Um, and rice aroma baijiu, it tends to be very like mild, and pretty easy to drink. I, I'd say it's most similar to like a vodka or a soju um, in terms of its texture and flavor profile. Um, you can definitely taste a little bit of rice in there, so maybe like some sake notes as well. Um, and then up in northeastern China, Light Aroma Baijiu is uh, best known for like Red Star Arguoto is yeah. one of the best known light aroma by Joe Brands. And that tends to be very like dry and crisp. Uh, it's often bottled at very high proofs. Um, the cheap stuff tends to be, you know, a little tough to drink. That's, you know, that's my first experience is actually with that. And it's funny that it's like called light, light aroma because it's, it seems like the harshest in some way of them. I don't know if that's the case, but I, I took some students, you've probably been to this in New Lan Shan. Um, uh, New Lan Shan, uh, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, by, by Beijing. And so we went, yeah, we went there as a student class visit and it was, it was quite fun. I mean, you, this, uh, you could smell the Baijiu throughout the city, the small city that it's in. And, and, uh, yeah, but it's it's uh, that's can be a pretty harsh type, the argoto. Yeah, so there, I mean, there's two like primary styles of light aroma baijiu. There's like the what's called funjo, which comes from like uh, uh, Shanxi province, uh, named after like Funyang County, and there's argoto, which is the style that comes from Beijing that tends to be a little bit you know more mass market and a bit rougher uh, on the drinker, I would say. Uh, but the, the light aroma in, in light aroma and the aroma in all of these refers to like the literal Chinese like name for the different categories of baijiu, which is like by their aroma types or like shangxing. So it's, it's not a perfect uh, descriptor. Um, and it's really referring specifically to like the complexity of the flavor. Um, whereas strong aroma baijiu, that comes out of Sichuan. It's the most popular style of baijiu in China. A lot of the well-known distilleries, uh, you know, like you mentioned, Wuliangye, Lujo La Jiao, uh, Shui Jingfang, Jian Nanshen, Yanghe. These are all strong aroma baijos. And strong aroma baijiu tends to be the most popular style of baijiu by a significant margin and it's notable for having both like very fruity flavors particularly like tropical fruit pineapple a little bit of like mango guava that banana um and then you have sauce aroma right across the border in guizhou province which is uh, what uh, Guizhou Maotai is is best the best known right. distillery in this category, and it tends to be very very savory and focus on more umami flavors. It's got lots of like sesame and nuts and herbs and a whole lot less of the fruitiness that you associate with with strong aroma baijiu. So each one of these drinks, if you taste them side by side, you wouldn't recognize them as being the same drink, but 
unfortunately, because of the the name Baijiu, which is you know is literally like a Chinese stand-in for liquor, it means white alcohol, um, has kind of come to define everything that China makes, and and a lot of confusion has ensued. Interesting that you know that sort of brings us to um you know introducing it to the American market. I mean, you mentioned that you know when you introduce these different types, people always find some that you like. Uh, and I know Ming River, I think, is the uh, strong aroma type. So is that the kind that mostly appeals to Westerners? I'm, I'm interested when you have these different tastings, like what are some of the trends that you see among Western palates uh, with their Baijiu uh, interests? Yeah, well, we entered the process of trying to introduce people outside of China to Baijiu with the hypothesis that rice aroma baijiu would be the logical starting point because rice aroma baijiu um, tends to be bottled at lower strengths in china it's often possible to see it at like 30 40 percent alcohol by volume whereas a lot of strong and sauce are bottled around like 52 percent alcohol by volume so we thought this is a lot like vodka it's not got very aggressive flavors um, it's not very strong, so let's let's try this out and see what people say. And the early results were not bad on the flavor uh, component. Like a lot of people tried it and said, like, yeah, this is fine. I would drink this. There, there's nothing wrong with this. is It's a perfectly fine drink. Uh, but they also noted that it's not very unusual. It doesn't have a lot to recommend it over vodka or soju or any one of the drinks that is widely available outside of China and usually costs quite a bit less than a product that's going to be, you know, imported from China would would cost on the market. So um like when we were talking to bartenders they said like yeah I would work with this but I don't see any reason why I would use this instead of vodka when I can get vodka for much cheaper. So uh, then we kind of went back to the drawing board and we, uh, by we, I mean, uh, my team at Ming River, me and my partners, um, Matthias Hager, Bill Eisler, and at that time, uh, Simon Dong, though he's since moved on. Um, we decided that we would work with strong aroma because it was our personal flavor um, that we identified with the most. And it was also, I because it is the most popular style of Baijiu in China, it felt fairly representative of, of the category. And what I've found since then is that when I do taste tests, particularly with people in the spirits industry, like people who work at bars, restaurants, um, you know, or it, you know, selling other types of spirits, um, that they find that to be their, their most uh, the, the one that they like the best. Um, sauce aroma is also quite popular in these taste tests. Um, not necessarily because it's the easiest baijiu to immediately appreciate or definitely not the easiest baijiu to work with in a cocktail, but because it is something so unlike anything else that they have at, at their bar that they're working with. Um, strong aroma baijiu has another pretty significant advantage in the international market, which is that because it has this really like bright, fruity, um, sweet flavor, um, it is quite a bit similar in a cocktail to like a very like strong, um, like pot distilled Jamaican rum or like a rum agricole from Martinique. Um, so it's, Similar to certain ingredients that bartenders have some some comfort with, but it's also different enough. It's got those like umami, those earthy, cheesy, funky notes that really bring something completely different to the table. So we, we've had a lot of success with that, whereas light aroma is kind of the odd man out most of the time. It's not the style that most people respond most positively to. Um and I think that's because light aroma, in terms of what it tastes like um, in the world of spirits, is probably closest to like a, a grappa, the like Italian pomace brandy, which is not a drink that's like widely popular um, outside of parts of Europe. So 
Um, it's probably got the least overlap in particularly American tastes. Oh, that's that's really interesting. And I, you know, I would, uh, you know, actually, as it turns out, after after having gone to Chengdu, I mean, a lot of times I spent a lot of time I spend in China is in Chengdu. And so many of the people that I'm with, they're big fans of the strong aroma. And so I've naturally gravitated actually liking that the best uh, myself. Uh, but I always thought it would be something that wouldn't actually fit American taste that well. But it's interesting to hear what you're saying, that in the taste tests, actually, a lot of sort of bartenders end up liking it. And I think, you know, the idea of sort of leaning into both some of the uniqueness and then also the fact that it overlaps a little bit with some of the rums uh, so you could be made into cocktails, I think, yeah, they're really, really interesting. Uh, so can you uh, take us back? So you have this interest in bringing Baijiu to, uh, to the U.S., uh, and you know, you mentioned your partners in Ming River. Can you say a little bit about the founding of Ming River? You know, how, how you got it up and running. It is, um, you know, based out of the U.S., but also I think has a strong uh, Sichuan connection as well. There's a very strong Sichuan connection. So, um, like you, um, strong aroma Baijiu quickly became my favorite style of Baijiu, and largely that happened uh, in two years between. 2011 and 2013, when I lived in Chengdu, and uh, Strong Aroma by Joe was widely available. There were dozens of different brands on my local convenience store steps, and it just pairs great with the spicy food out in Sichuan. So um, that became my favorite right away. Uh, but what how this came about was, like I said, I in my time in China, I decided at a certain point that I wanted to know more about Baijiu. And when I was living in Chengdu, um, I lived in Shanghai for five years before that and gotten into, you know, writing about Chinese history uh, while I was working at a publishing house, Earnshaw Books in Shanghai. Um, it wasn't until Chengdu that I really decided to explore this and read everything I could get my hands on, kind of taught myself um, f whatever I could from English language sources and then later like Chinese textbooks on alcohol and ended up taking a trip of a few months around the country visiting different uh, both contemporary and historic production regions of alcohol in China um, so that I could you know hear it directly from the people who made it you know what they were trying to do what they liked about it and um, hopefully get a sense of like what what this universe was and and where where Chengdu and my experiences fit into that. Um, so I ended up publishing uh, a book about Baijiu, Baijiu, The Essential Guide to Chinese Spirits in 2014. And I was traveling around that year to um, Chinese cities, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Beijing, uh, Chengdu, and speaking about, uh, about Baijiu and Chinese drinking culture. And after my talks, I would bring a few bottles with me and I would let the audience taste a few of the different uh, styles of Baijiu so they, they could get a sense for you know what I thought were good Baijiu's. And they could see maybe it wasn't what they thought it was when they when they stepped in the door. And during one of these tastings, um, a, an American uh, came up to me, uh, Bill Eisler, and he was working in like the cattle industry in Inner Mongolia actually at the time. But he had worked, uh, you know, running bars in Beijing in the past, and he had some friends who he was thinking of opening a bar with. And he asked me, you know, that had people liked Baijiu as much as they were enjoying it at this talk in Beijing and other cities. And I said, yeah. And he was saying that he hadn't known what the bar that they were opening, what their hook should be, what they should build their program around. Um, and he was thinking maybe they should build a cocktail bar that was solely focused around drinks made with Baijiu. Um, 
there they were in China and there were many bars of all different kinds, but nothing where you could just sit and casually drink Baijiu um, in, in a country that makes, you know, literally, you know, billions of liters of Baijiu every year. So he asked what I thought, and I thought it was kind of a crazy idea, but I didn't tell him that. I said, you know, sounds cool. Good luck. And I didn't really think a lot about it until a few months later when uh, he reached out to me again and told me that they were going to be opening in a hutong in a couple of weeks and uh, just asked, you know, for my thoughts. And I was I was excited about it. Um, but it was a real challenge uh, because... A lot of people doubted that this notion that a Baijiu could work in a cocktail bar because you have two potential customer bases in Beijing. You have local Beijingers who drink Baijiu exclusively in restaurants and you have, uh, you know, the expatriate community who, like you and I, have largely initially bad opinions of Baijiu and wouldn't think usually to order a drink that had Baijiu in it. So the expectation was, you know, that this might not work. But um, when they opened up, uh, they got a lot of people in there, I think, for the novelty of it. About three quarters were um, foreign expatriates and uh, one quarter was local Chinese. But within about a year of it being open, that was exactly flipped. Um, it had become more popular with the locals and, you know, was still frequented by, uh, you know, foreigners, tourists, people who wanted to try Baijiu when they were in uh, Beijing. But um, they were attracting particularly an unusual demographic for drinking Baijiu, which tended to be both co-ed. Um, Baijiu drinkers in China tend to be over the age of 35 and male. Um, not exclusively, but that's by far the largest demographic. And they, they tended to be younger than, than 35. So um, within a few months of they're getting some press uh, for opening a bar built around Baijiu. Um, Chinese distilleries started sending representatives to their bar um, to try to figure out what it was that they were doing uh, different that was getting uh, people who don't normally drink Baijiu to drink Baijiu and asking if they would be willing to work with those distilleries to help them uh, create products and strategies for attracting new new uh, consumer bases for Baijiu. So at this point, they reached back out to me. Um, I no longer lived in China at the time. I was in Argentina. And they said, you know, we've got these distilleries in China who think that there's an opportunity for Baijiu outside of China. Um, would you you know, team up with us and we could work to develop these, these programs for them. So I said, sure. Um, because I was also getting business inquiries, uh, both from Chinese and international business people, uh, who were, who were asking for my advice on Baijiu and I wasn't based in China. So having partners over there would be incredibly useful. Um, but this, consulting business we started it only lasted maybe two or three months before a major strong aroma baijiu distillery um lujo la jiao um reached out to us and said that they had actually been planning for a while to launch a product that would exclusively target the international market something that wouldn't be available in china but would be they saw it as kind of like a, you know, a spearhead for Baijiu outside of China, something that could raise global awareness and could get Baijiu into the places that it wasn't at present, which was, you know, more international restaurants, um, bars, nightclubs, music venues, uh, just 
all of the non-traditional uh, Baijiu consumption venues. So we said that we would be happy to work on that. They said, we don't want you, you know, consulting on this. We want you on the team. And so we worked out a deal where we would co-own the brand that we created with them and would take over as the kind of sales management team overseas where we would oversee the creative direction of the pro the project outside of China and they would make the the product in China and use their expertise to help us make the best possible Baijiu for the international market. Cool. Really, uh, yeah, very interesting sort of founding story. I mean, from you, you, you as an author and giving talks and, you know, meeting up with some entrepreneurs and obviously you were working, like you mentioned, the consulting um, uh, side side as well. You know, uh, I'm, and I really want to get into like, you know, the product creation, like how you're able to create uh, Ming River. But before then, I want to go back a little bit to you mentioned the bar that your partners had previously started as a cocktail bar with Baijiu. And, you know, as I think about Baijiu, I've never actually had a Baijiu cocktail. You know, it's really tied up, you know, with these little small glasses that people, you know, if you respect the person, you'll do the whole shot or maybe you just take a little sip. Um, and, you know, as part of the Chinese drinking culture and then the Western drinking culture is usually more, you know, mixed drinks, cocktails. And I'm curious, was there any sort of tradition or background of cocktail making with Baijiu prior to your partners founding that? Not so much. So the bar um, was called Capital Spirits, and it still exists in some form in Beijing under different ownership. Uh, but it was, I think, a fairly novel idea. I mean, over the years, many bartenders, both in China and elsewhere, have, you know, tried sticking Baijiu in a cocktail and seeing what happens. So that, that wasn't really, um, unique to, to them, but it wasn't certainly ever anything that had caught on before they, they started doing it. And, there's not really a, a tradition of making cocktails in China. Uh, in China, Baijiu is usually served um, neat at room temperature. And as you said, in mostly little shot glasses, though, there are parts of China where they use, you know, rice bowls or beer glasses and other things. But almost always you're shooting like small amounts of it. Even what is when the volume of the, the typical ones that you the see? the volume of those tend to be like five to ten milliliters, which is about a you know a third to a fourth of like a western sized shot glass shot. And so it's always served needed at room temperature, and it's always served alongside food um, because the the baijiu from different parts of China is really designed with flavors that are complementary to the food of that region of China, which is why in Sichuan, where the food's very spicy, you have a baijiu that's like very sweet and fruity uh, because it really brings down the spice in your mouth and the spice in the food like brings out some of the more like subtle aromatics in the baijiu itself. Um, so, so that's, that's how it's, mostly consumed and then you also have like this like paojo or um like infused uh alcohol tradition in china that's largely tied up with uh chinese medicine where you take fruits herbs spices sometimes animals and you soak them in the alcohol and whatever curative pro properties those ingredients are supposed to have uh, gets absorbed into the baijiu, and then you, you know, drink it as, you know, a, a tonic of some sort. And some, in many parts of China, they also just drink infused baijos and huangjos too, um, because they enjoy the flavor of them. And, and, and for nothing more mysterious than that. Um, so while it is true that, that cocktails themselves aren't really a part of Chinese tradition, the notion that Baijiu's flavors are meant to be paired with other flavors is very much a part of how 
Um, Chinese have always viewed alcohol, that, that alcohol is not something that you just open a bottle and sit down and drink by itself. You always are pairing it with other things that will bring out the best in it. Cool. And very interesting. That's, uh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. That, and so, um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the cocktails um, in, in a second. But uh, so, you know, you're partnered with uh, Lu Zhou Lao Jiao. And they've charged you with, you know, figuring out a Baijiu that will appeal to the West, Western palate, so to speak. Can you describe the process of how, you know, I guess there must be some, I don't know, recipe or blending or, you know, how, how did you actually work with that? I mean, you did focus groups, tests, talk to bartenders, uh, you know, love to hear how you, how you worked on the product. We viewed the process of taking Baijiu outside of uh, China a little bit differently, I think, than a lot of people who had made earlier attempts at creating international Baijiu brands did. Because a lot of the early uh, international Baijiu brands started from the hypothesis that Baijiu was too funky and out there for anyone outside of China to appreciate, that there was something wrong with Baijiu itself that needed to be corrected. So they would either add flavors or they would filter the Baijiu in different ways. They were trying to kind of take something of the product's essence out of it to make it, you know, less Chinese. Whereas we started from the opposite assumption that Baijiu is in and of itself a good drink that can be appreciated by people who like good drinks if it was presented to them in a way that they could appreciate and understand it. So the drink itself, we wanted to change as little as possible. Um, we spent almost all of our efforts thinking about what the right way to introduce it into new settings was. So like, for example, um, we chose the name Ming River, uh, which uh, references the distillery's heritage. It's uh, a very well-known distillery located on the Yangtze River, and it's the oldest distillery in China that was founded during the Ming Dynasty. So um, it ties back to the distillery, but it's not Lujo Lao Jiao, which is... Um, a word that's functionally unpronounceable to non-Mandarin speakers. And just, you know, marketing 101, if you're trying to sell something, people need to be able to say it out loud and remember it for the next time they want to order it. Um, then we took a design that uses several traditional like Chinese design elements. Um, and it's actually, the shape of it is based on a Chinese lantern and it's taken from the shape of one of Lujo Lao Jiao's uh, most popular bottles from the 1980s. Um, but we extended the neck of the bottle for a very important reason, which is if you're working with a bartender, uh, they need to be able to grab the bottle by the neck uh, from the, the well in front of them so they can use it in cocktails and make it easier to pour. Um, and then, uh, like another minor change, we have a wooden cork, which is unheard of in China because when you're drinking Baijiu at the dinner table in China, um, oftentimes you have to actually physically destroy the, the lid of the bottle in order to open it, uh, because there's no expectation that you're going to save any of it for later. You're supposed to drink the entire bottle right then and there with your friends and that's the end of it but uh, if if you're not uh accustomed to drinking that much baijo in one sitting uh, you need a bottle that you can close and go back to later um so yeah just very very superficial changes that respect the the heritage of the product and are true to what Baijiu is in China. Um, then I would say one final and important change that we made to the Baijiu itself um, is that it is a unique blend uh, that's, that's unique to that particular product. Um, so our distillery makes dozens of different brands uh, in China that they sell. 
Um, but each one of these products is blended. So um, I won't get too into it, but suffice it to say there's different grades of Baijiu um, depending on the age and the time and the way in which the Baijiu is made um, that they keep at their production facility. And they blend these all together um, using different grades of Baijiu in different brands for different price points. So... We went to the distillery. We knew what the selling price had to be in the U.S. if it was going to be successful. Um, a lot of Baijiu brands in the past had made a mistake by taking their best Baijiu, which sells for like $200 a bottle, and thinking that that was their best product. So that's what they needed to sell overseas. But very few people are willing to uh, gamble that kind of money on a spirit they don't know very well. So uh, we priced it, you know, kind of in like the upper mid range of the U.S. market at like about $35 retail and work backwards from that. Like we knew what our cost would be. We knew what the distributors cut would be. We knew what the, you know, bar, restaurant, liquor stores cut would be. And so we had a price in mind on what we could spend on the the liquid itself. So we told them that price. We said, give us the best by Joe blends you can make at that price point. And then we took those blends um, with us to New York and got together a bunch of the best known and most respected bartenders in town. And we had them taste several different blends that our blender had put together that highlighted different elements of Strong Aromas by Joe's flavor. And so we started with four A, B, C, and D. Uh, we got the feedback, uh, who liked which styles the most. We took that feedback back to our blender and she gave us four more different blends that took into account the feedback we got from the first round. We did this another couple of times until we narrowed down exactly the blend that we wound up putting inside the bottle in Ming River. So, um, it's made exactly the same way as all of their other Baijos, but, but the blend itself is one that I feel pretty confident saying is one that if you drink a lot of light aroma, or not light aroma, if you drink a lot of strong aroma Baijo, uh, you'll recognize it and you'll appreciate it as that. You, it's a perfectly fine drink to consume neat alongside a spicy hot pot, but it's also something that because we took into account feedback from bartenders, um, I think highlights more of like the floral element of the Strong Aroma Baijo profile. These like really nice kind of like star anise fennel notes that you get out of it that maybe is slightly easier to work with in a cocktail than some of their other blends. So yeah, that's, that's how we landed with uh, what became Ming River. How about one, this question might not make sense but did you think at all about the alcohol level i mean baijiu has such a wide range from you know like 30 percent to 60 percent you know as you mentioned the strong aroma of the wulong ye is usually like like 52 percent uh so how, how did you think about that or was that just a natural part of the blending where it was just a variable the blender took care of so the high strength baijos um act Actually cost more to produce, but also um, are often subject to higher taxes when you're taking them uh, outside of the country. So um, we knew that we didn't want to have the, you know, high end, the like 50 plus percent alcohol by volume strength. And our distillery actually, and a lot of distilleries actually bottle the same brands at different strengths. So um, not long ago, Maotai introduced a 45% uh, alcohol by volume uh, blend of Maotai, uh, whereas 53% was their standard. And our distillery as well um, often bottles their products at both 52 and 38% alcohol by volume. And interestingly enough, in the town of Luzhou, where um, our Baijiu is made, uh, when we go out to drink with the distillery, more often than not, they're drinking the 38%. That's what they prefer um, out there because I think it's easier to appreciate the flavor with without having so much of a punch. Uh, but 
Uh, we knew that we wanted an ingredient that was going to be used in cocktails, so we didn't want to go all the way down uh, to that strength. So we landed at 45%, which is just about right in the middle between those two strengths. And I think it works well because, as I said before, it works neat if you're, you know, drinking it with food, but it also goes pretty well in a cocktail and more than carries its weight in terms of uh, providing a buzz. Cool. Very interesting. Um, So you have a product now, let's say. Um, Can you say a little bit about the complexities of getting that product to the U.S.? how you, I mean, assume bars initially, you know, found bars. And I also, I know in the U.S. that the, like, sales of alcohol is very complicated and how it's regulated at the state level. So just your whole distribution strategy I'd love to hear about. Sure. So after we had the product um, ready to go, we'd uh, developed the blend. We worked with... uh, pretty well-known um, bottle designer in Manchester, England, who gave us the mold for the bottle that we ended up using and designed the labels. Uh, we, When we had a finished product, uh, we had to first find an importer in the U.S. because they have there what's called a, a three-tier system where you have to have like a different importer, a different distributor, and a different distributor in all 50 states. You can't use the same distributor in... Wow. <laughs> Did <laughs> you know I, that when you got started in this? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, okay. we figured this out pretty early on. Um, and then uh, the actual uh, retail outlet, the, the interface with the customer, whether it be the liquor store or the bar or the restaurant, all three of these are you know, legally separated in the United States. So there's a lot of complexity into it. And it's first we found an importer and it was an importer that worked with primarily like smaller imported brands um, and was a really good fit for us at that time. Uh, uh, Park Street was the the importer because they specialize in these kind of small imports. And as a result, they have a, the ability to directly uh, distribute in a a couple of markets in the U S. So we didn't have to find new distributors in New York and California, which are our biggest and first targets in the U S. So we were able to get started right away in those two markets once we found agreed to terms with them as as an importer, and from that point it was mostly trial and error. Um, We at the same time we launched in the U.S. we launched in Germany with our uh, partner Matthias Hager, who's based in Berlin, and so he started slowly building uh, a distribution network in Europe. And we started working with our sales network in New York and California to kind of, you know, establish a proof of concept that we could build upon. So we found accounts in these places. We started selling products. And on the strength of what we were able to do in those markets, we were able to expand into other markets, uh, New Jersey, and then Illinois, um, followed by a, another couple smaller markets and a few like special orders to uh, states that have alcohol monopolies like uh, Oregon. And uh, meanwhile, in Europe, uh, Matthias was able to get us into um, Denmark and Switzerland and Austria, um, focusing um, on the immediate vicinity around Germany where he was based. But slowly but surely expanding. And then we had a really big expansion in the last uh, six months, actually, where we started working with um, a different uh, national sales team who also functions as our importer, which is uh, a company called 375 Park Avenue, not to be confused with our previous uh, it's interesting. Two companies with the same similar with, with name. Park, yeah, yeah, in the in the name, but um, but three seventy five Park Avenue um is a division of one of the largest uh liquor companies in the United States, uh, Sazerac. 
Um, so they actually represent a lot of different brands uh, that are quite well known in, in the U.S. market and have experience working with distributors in every state and, and multiple distributors in every state. So um, we've really undergone a pretty significant expansion in our U.S. distribution capabilities um, in, in the last several months where we went from being available in about five states to being available in more than 20 states um, in, in a matter of a few months. So uh, that, that's been a huge, huge help to us. Um, also, because when we were building the brand over the first couple of years, we were focusing almost exclusively on restaurants, mostly like higher end Chinese restaurants and craft cocktail bars. So our efforts were focused on almost entirely what they call um, on-premise accounts, uh, where only about 10% of our sales were in what were called order called off-premise accounts, which are, you know, retail outlets. Got it. How about online? That's another good question. So um, when COVID happened, uh, we had this huge problem where almost all of the people selling our Baijo in the United States and Europe were bars and restaurants and bars and restaurants were closing or doing only like takeaway, uh, which isn't conducive to Baijo cocktails uh, for the most part. So we had to totally rethink our strategy. One of the first things we did uh, was to address uh, the concern you just raised, um, online sales, because we really, it's very difficult to sell alcohol online in the United States because it's illegal to ship alcohol um, over state lines. Um, whereas they don't have this problem in Europe and it's pretty easy to sell um, alcohol online in most of the world. But in the U.S., uh, you have this problem. So what we had to do if we wanted to sell is we worked out an arrangement with a third-party company that's called Cask and Barrel Club um, that act, that specializes um, as being an intermediary company. So they actually set up an online store for Ming River um, where they are running it and handling all of the sales and they work with distributors in I think 40 something states in the United States. So um, almost everywhere in the US, if you go to their store, uh, shopmingriver.com, uh, which we set up last summer, you can order Ming River and it will be supplied by a local distributor that will ship it directly to you. So, so, um, it's, so it's a very convoluted yeah. process, but uh, it's uh, what you have to do if you want to be operating online in the U.S. And, and the other thing that I think is very lucky for us in terms of our recent timing is that by starting to work with 375 Park Avenue and the, the Sazerac company is that they have relationships with these distributors in all of these different states. And they also have a pretty strong national sales team. So they have been able very quickly in a matter of just a few months to get us in a lot of retail outlets that we weren't in before to the point where um, just looking at the sales in recent months, our numbers are exactly flipped where, you know, we've got 80 to 90% of our sales are now in liquor stores and a small portion of them are in bars and restaurants. But hopefully um, with the vaccination rollout, um, there will be m more of a market for bars and restaurants uh, by this summer and we can get back to something that's, uh, if not, you know, majority driven by bars and restaurants, at least closer to 50-50 and, and a more sustainable path forward than we had before. Yeah, well, it's great to hear about this recent, uh, you know, progress. I mean, even amidst COVID and, and really, you know, wish you guys the best of luck as you, as you mentioned, the vaccinations roll out and people start going out again. I mean, it seems you're, you know, very well positioned uh, for that. Uh, a few couple small final questions. I'm curious, uh, uh, the, the Baijiu cocktails, would you mind you maybe, I don't know, what's your favorite, describing a few of those? Sure. So 
I have had many, many Baijiu cocktails at this point. Um, it wasn't some how I fell in love with Baijiu, and I still think my favorite way to drink Baijiu is alongside very spicy Chinese food um, in little shot glasses with my friends. But um, the cocktails that we found are the most successful with Ming River really fall into three approaches, which are kind of riffs on classic cocktails that um, add baijo and maybe one or two other ingredients to balance it out. Um, it works really well with like more like bitter aperitivo style drinks. So um, there's this one uh, that we call the paper crane, which is a riff on the paper plane. And it uses equal parts of strong aroma baijo, Aperol, uh, Amaro Montenegro, and lemon juice. And it's this just nice, bitter, refreshing cocktail. Um, it works really well in like sour style drinks, but it really, more than anything, plays really well in uh, tiki style tropical cocktails, things like daiquiris, mai tais, oh, huh. painkillers, uh, things that have a naturally like very like sweet fruity flavor. Mm -hmm. Um, the kind of drinks where you'll get them in mugs with lots of umbrellas and fruit slices right. sticking out of them are it, really, really like a match made in heaven for huh. strong aroma style by Joe. So I can imagine like sitting I, on Hainan Island having those. Or yeah, something. yeah, exactly. And my favorite one of those is a drink, um, developed by a friend of ours, uh, Shannon Mustafer, uh, author of Tiki, uh, modern tropical cocktails. And she put together a series of drinks for us. My favorite of which is called Trader's Treasure. So the Trader's Treasure is a really like complex layered cocktail that combines Ming River Baijiu with Batavian Arak, which is uh, a, like a rum-like drink uh, made in Indonesia, uh, chinar, honey syrup, lime juice, and pineapple juice. And uh, just to my mind, a perfect Baijiu cocktail. So um, I, I would also urge your readers, if they're interested in uh, more Baijiu cocktails, to check out um, on our website, mingriver.com. If you click on the button for cocktails on the menu, uh, there's a link to download a cocktail book of our favorite cocktails that we have developed over the last couple of years um, that have a pretty good range and also uh, various levels of difficulty so that um, home bartenders need not be scared off. There's plenty of super simple drinks in there that uh, will be very difficult to mess up. Cool. I'll take a look at that myself. I, I haven't seen that yet. That's great. Uh, final question: Your favorite Baijiu? I mean, you can't and you can't say Ming River or Lu, any Lujo Lao Jiao one. Uh, which do you have a favorite Baijiu? Oh, now you're going to get me in trouble with my uh, partners. <laughs> Well, we, we've we've stipulated, you know, you can't say Ming River because, like, of course, it's so I'm sure it's Ming I, River. I do want to say, and this is um, this is not me puffing up uh, Lujo Lao Jiao, but um, as you will see if you followed my early blogging on Baijiu or read Drunken China, that um, it was Lujo Lao Jiao's top shelf 1573 Baijiu was the turning point for me the first baijo i fell in love with and still one of my favorites so um but if i'm not allowed to say that i would recommend another uh old famous uh baijo brand from sichuan um jin nanchun uh which a friend of mine worked with for a while and is a really uh good example of the the five grain style uh, strong aroma by Joe um, that uses more than just sorghum. It's a slightly different flavor profile, um, but worth checking out if you like strong aroma by Joe as well. Um, and then I'll give you one by Joe that I think is maybe a good by Joe to recommend to your friend who says by Joe is the worst thing that he or she has ever tried and doesn't think there's a baijiu out there that they can appreciate. And that would be a baijiu called Lao Guilin, 
that's made by the Guilin San Hua Distillery, um, which is a rice aroma baijiu distillery. And this is a really special baijiu that's made exclusively from uh, like sticky rice. So it's got a lot of natural sweetness to it, but it's also just this very like mellow, super delicious, like honey-like drink that um, I think is something you can surprise your friends with and maybe don't even tell them that you're serving them baijiu until after they try it um, to get their reaction because uh, I think it will make people reconsider what they think baijiu is and can be. So um, one of my favorites uh, in the rice aroma category and something I think is a good way to trick your friends into liking baijiu. Great. Super interesting. And I must say, you know, our conversation has really uh, missed, made me miss being in China. You know, with COVID, it's been, it's been over a year. And so, you know, hopefully we'll be back before not too long. Um, so really, yeah, I just want to thank you for this super interesting uh, discussion. You know, encourage the listeners to check out your your website of Ming, Ming River Baijiu uh, and also your book, Drunk in China, which I think is just a fantastic sort of story of a personal experience mixed with a lot of interesting history and culture. So thank you so much, Derek, for joining us on China Corner Office. Really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks. Me too. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.